Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 20th, 2021. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in California, Northern California. It's about as far as you can get from the Middle East as possible, <laughs> certainly in geographic terms, perhaps symbolically as well. Although sometimes when you go to downtown San Francisco these days, not that I've been to Beirut, but I can imagine in some ways they're not entirely dissimilar as places of, 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 of social dislocation. Uh, we haven't done a show on the Middle East uh, for a few weeks, so it's a good opportunity to return in a way, although we're going to be looking at the Middle East very much from the perspective, I think, of the from the United States. Looking at the headlines today of the Middle East, always seems to me as if the Middle East is a victim of great powers. The New York Times has been leading with a, a series of supposedly confidential Pentagon reports about US-led bombings of Iraq, resulting in terrible tragedy of one kind or another. Uh, other headlines are about um, the growing Chinese presence in Syria because of the Syrian civil war. Uh, and as Israel strikes again against Syria, perhaps the Russians are going to get involved as well. So Iraq, Syria, places of great power rivalry and tragedy. Meanwhile, in Lebanon, which is itself a kind of theater within the theater of the Middle East, uh, the United Nations Guterres has been recently blaming Lebanon's leaders for paralyzing the country. I'm sure the international community has a responsibility for that as well. And just as Lebanon seems ungovernable or in crisis in a perpetual sense, the state is breaking down. One piece I saw today in Al Jazeera is about how now citizens are becoming the police. Uh, Lebanon's political crisis is an endemic one, and it revolves, I think, around the dismantling or diminishment of, of the state. There's still hope in Lebanon, as there always is. Uh, one piece I found this morning suggests that Lebanon's parliamentary elections in March of next year might be a chance for change, always a chance for change, particularly in Lebanon, which is for better or worse, distinguished for its relative democracy in comparison, certainly with Syria and other parts of the Gulf states. Anyway, that's all background to our show today. My guest is Hala Alian, one of America's leading young novelists of displacement in the Middle East. Her latest book uh, earlier this year, The Arsonist City, was acclaimed in on NPR and New York Times. And she's here to talk about writing the Middle East and her sense, I think, of being lost. Um, Hala, nice to have you on the show. Those headlines I showed from the Middle East, I could hear a couple of grunts of, I weren't sure if they were affirmation or disgust. <laughs> um, what's your take on the current state, particularly of Lebanon, it seems as if there's something very odd going on there in Lebanon, although 
perhaps there's always something very odd going on in Lebanon. Uh, your most recent novel, um, The Arsonist City, is uh, a piece of fiction about a Palestinian family in Lebanon. So they're, they're a Lebanese-Syrian family um, that, uh, that basically left during the war and sort of settled in California um, and then go back to sort of stop the sale of their ancestral home over the course of the summer um, in Beirut. And what did writing the book, I know you're a fiction writer, a novelist, and your, and your book is enormously entertaining and moving, but What's the politics of the book? Thank you. Um, that's a great question. I mean, the politics are, it's very much a can't be neutral on a moving train sort of situation. I mean, it's, I think the book does, because it spans the civil war, it, span, sure it starts before 75, it starts before 1975. Um, so we do find ourselves with the characters in the civil war on the ground in Lebanon and in Syria during those years. Um, and so there was really no way to avoid writing about what was happening in that time um, and what was sort of the the catalyst of, of the family moving to California. I've been asked before, you know, what, like, uh, how could the story have been differently, have been told differently if you didn't write about the war? And it's like, well, you, you can't not write about the war. The war ends up being sort of the, the thing that propels the characters as it did so many people in real life to leave or to stay or to make sort of unthinkable choices. Um, so I think the politics, this is honestly just tied up in sort of the mundane and the everydayness of the story and that the characters lives are so impacted by it. But in, in a way it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's impossible to kind of like tease it apart from like everything else that's happening in their lives. We had recently, uh, Fiona Hill on the show. She's well known because she was one of the people who stood up to Donald Trump. She's written a book about what we described at Lit Hub, at least, as the increasingly Russian way of life in America. But I wonder whether the way of life in America is increasingly becoming more like Lebanon, or at least the American system is becoming like Lebanon, a kind of confessional democracy of people retreating into their ethnicity, into their religion, into their race, into a, a sense of history in which nothing is shared. Uh, you're someone who is part of an exiled family, doubly exiled or triply exiled from Palestine to Iraq to the United, uh, to, sorry, from Palestine to Kuwait to the United right. States. Um, what do you think Lebanon and the United States have in common? Am I being fanciful of making that? <laughs> I mean, I definitely think the U.S. has a, a degree of, of power that Lebanon does not have. Yeah, um, that's given. Of <laughs> um, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting question. I do I do think that in both of those places, as we're seeing increasingly on a global scale the divisions between groups and between like, you know, sects or ident different identity markers, like you're saying, are deepening. So I do think that in that sense, both of these places are kind of on trend, so to speak, with what's happening around the world. Um, and I do think that there is kind of a collective identity that is getting harder and harder to pin down. Although I would be remiss not to say there is there is a, a fair amount of there's a, 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 a I would say fairly large number of people in Lebanon that are doing a lot of work to sort of increase cohesion um, and and to kind of make sure that like you know the the, the lessons of, of of this war are never repeated. 
But, but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, especially with the advent of fake news, like I, I do think that there is a similarity in that there, there feels like in both places, a certain hope is getting eroded in the idea of being able to work cohesively together with people that we do not, with whom we do not share views or do not share opinions. I think that's becoming like a, a more and more to use your word fanciful concept. Unfortunately, I think that's true for, for many places around the world. Hello. And uh, I, I listened to an interesting interview with you uh, on NPR about the latest book in which actually, I think it was from your previous book when you say I belonged nowhere story mm. of displacement from a novelist who knows what it's like to uh, belong nowhere. I think that was from your previous novel, yes. Salt Houses, which has yeah. been acclaimed as well. This idea, though, uh, of belonging nowhere seems to be an increasing uh, obsession uh, with both writers and perhaps people. Uh, I had <coughs> Canadian writer Kamal Al-Solaili on the show recently, uh, who's written a book about imaginary returns. He's from Yemen. Mm -hmm. Is this our common fate in our globalized world to belong nowhere? I mean, I think, I think increasingly what it means to belong to a place is changing, especially if you belong to parts of the world that undergo a fair amount of conflict or fair, I mean, I, I, so I think there's two answers to that. So yes, I think that's certainly true for people that belong to diasporic communities, exiled communities, et cetera. But I think to your point with increasing globalization, I think place is not starting to matter less. It's just starting to matter differently so that you could return to the same. I, I think of New York is a good example. I live in New York. Um, and I know many people who've been here since the 60s and 70s and who talk about sort of this city kind of becoming like a, uh, there was like a phrase in an article, I think of the New Yorker where it's like, it's become kind of like a mausoleum of itself. Like this, the same place, even if you haven't left it for 30 or 40 or 50 years, you are starting to see similar landmarks in different cities across the world in a way that you didn't before, right? So there's a Zara's everywhere. There's an H&M everywhere. And I think that that does do something to what it, to the sort of specificity of place. Um, in a way that is different, obviously, than exile and diaspora. But I think when you put those two together, it, it, it does feel like it's it's feeling harder and harder to really like lay claim to a to a to physical space um, in today's world. And again, that's that's like a different topic than like you know places that are occupied or places that you don't have access to to to, to return to or to to visit or whatever. Um, but just sort of in a more general kind of globalized sense. Don't we all want to? own the past these days. Um, mm. You were actually introduced to me by Omar uh, Muelem, um, yes. who, who wrote a wonderful book. He was on the show uh, last month, wrote a wonderful book about the unknown history of Islam in the Americas. But we all seem to be in the business, particularly writers, poets, filmmakers. You're both a, you're a writer, you're a novelist, you're a poet, and you're a filmmaker, about mm. somehow owning the past and perhaps that need to own the past is a casualty of our endless displacement. Do you think there's some truth to that? I do. And I think it's, it's the own the past is an interesting way of putting it. I think of it like 
particularly when I think of fellow like writers of color, Arab writers, Muslim writers, it's like writing ourselves into the past or being mm. able to kind of like reimagine the past in a way that like counteracts the erasure that's sort of already taken place. Um, but I definitely think there is a way in which the past is the currency for so many younger writers that are, that belong to like various diasporic or exiled groups. I do think there's a little bit of this obsession with like the past and what we can make of it. Um, and how we can kind of like, like both make sense of it. And, 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 and again, I guess like, like maybe it is a little bit of like planting a little bit of a flag in the past because that's kind of been taken from, from, from our four, you know, our four parents or whatever. Uh, one of the headlines from uh, your excellent uh, review of the, of the latest book in the New York times was uh, a family reunites in Beirut. They're, they're talking about, um, uh, the arsonist city, where the past is never the past. That's a, become increasingly a mm. cliche. But is one of the messages perhaps in the book is that we need not to learn to remember, but learn to forget. The reason I ask you that is I mm. had Kim Khatas, the Lebanese-based journalist, excellent writer. She has mm. a new, well, it's not such a new book out at the moment. It's called The Black Wave. And in that book, she she quotes Kierkegaard. That, uh, he, he wrote, it is perfectly true that life must be understood backward, but they forget the other proposition, that it must be lived forwards. Mm. Is that the challenge for the displaced? For Absolutely. countries like Lebanon, which are yes. sort of jigsaws of displaced people, to live yes. forwards rather than backwards? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there is there's such a balancing act there of like being able to account for and remember and honor the past while simultaneously keeping an eye, you know, sort of keeping your gaze forward and thinking about what we're going to build moving beyond that is so crucial. Um, but it's, but, but, and I think, you know, it's pretty encapsulated in that quote. It's really hard to do that without a strong comprehension of the past, like without really understanding your history, it's hard to have a real solid sense of what you want your future to look like. So I, I, I do think that they go hand in hand. You kind of can't do one without the other, but I don't think you can keep stepping for like, you can't like walk forward while you're sort of craning your neck to look behind you. I, I, I think that that it's just not effective. And of course, the Middle East is full of communities that no longer exist. We had the the journalist Janine De Giovanni on the show recently, who's written a book about the disappearance of many historic Christian communities in Iraq, in Syria, right mm. across the Levant. Um, so history has its own tragic way of forgetting, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny, I think sometimes we talk about history as though it's passive, as though it's sort of done by like some like invisible hand. It's like history is made up of people who made choices, who did things or didn't do things or stepped up or didn't step up or spoke up or defended or attacked or occupied or whatever. Um, and there is and I think that that's that goes hand in hand with that concept of erasure that I think we are, you can see it around the Middle East, you can see it around the world. Of like different, I mean, certainly here when you hear like you know people who are arguing against critical race theory being taught, um, that sort of there's this effort to kind of bring in history as it actually is, and then there's this pushback of saying, well, I'm not sure I want that in my textbooks. I'm not sure that's the history that I want to be taught. So can we sanitize it? Can we make it more palatable? Can we make it more digestible to a certain group of people? Um, 
and it's and and yeah and i think as long as you do that, as long as you are battling as long as you are in conflict with what history truly was and true like the truth of it you, there is i i do not have much hope for there being an like an authentically um realized and connected future hello we had uh, earlier actually today um uh, uh, kate daniels from um vanderbilt university she has a mm. new book out slow fuse of the possible a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis Ooh. and we talked about in at least in her view that the the role of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytical writing was to make people feel uncomfortable do you think that's the job as well as a novelist? Is the goal of your book not to produce pain, but to make your reader awkward, not to feed them certainty, not to feed into their own? Biases? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. That's also a great title for a book. I think that the goal of of <coughs> sorry. <coughs> And uh, and Hala is a is a hero or heroine. She has actually got COVID, so I she's the first live COVID person we've had on the show. So Hala, if you if you, you die on Thank screen, um, this will be a first. I'll, you know, yeah. you'll be the last words. Yeah, carry on without me. I so I would say that I think the goal of a fiction writer, the goal of of I will say this fiction writer. So I'm not speaking for people is to try to encapsulate true to life interactions, stories, relationships, communities, et cetera. And I think the true to life thing often is discomfort. It often is uncertainty. It often is sort of like unpolished, half finished narratives. So I think in that sense, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think to tell, to tell a, in my case, like a, a kind of intricate nuanced family story, you're, it's going to be incredibly deeply, gloriously messy because that's the story of most families in real life. I don't think there's any way to kind of go around it. And like uh, Kate Daniels, Hala, um, you're a writer, but you're also uh, a clinical psychologist. That yes. may be your, I don't know where you earn more money as a clinical psychologist or <laughs> novelist, I'm guessing probably as a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Um, uh, Kate is not a formal uh, uh, psychoanalyst, but mm. she, a lot of her academic work is associated with psychoanal uh, psychoanalysis. So uh, clearly, there's a crossover in your work, and I'm assuming also that your your writing, your novels, your poetry, <coughs> your filmmaking affects your clinical psychology, does it? Yeah, I think so. I think they all sort of play into each other and like the relationship is kind of multi-directional. Um, I think that the the sort of things that I work on in general, I've and I've always said this sort of like my currency is narrative, it's storytelling, right? So that's true whether I'm working on a poem, it's true whether I'm working on a script, it's true whether I'm sitting in the room with a client. Um, I think there's a commonality in that in all of the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm sort of presented with kind of fragments um, of a story or of a narrative. And it's sort of my job to help sift through it and try to turn it into something cohesive and whole. And I certainly think that's the task of a therapist is to help people make kind of like whole, you know, cohesive holes out of fragments. I think that's true out of, a, you know, a novelist, a writer. What is a novel in the first, however many months or years of its, of its creation, usually it's, it's like a, 
it's it's kind of a collection a gathering of like images and dialogue and maybe a snippet of an ending and maybe i want this character to do this and whatever and you're trying to stitch it together and turn it into something that's sort of coherent um so i i definitely think that the more i work in both fields the more i learn skills or questions or ways to look at the world or people or incentives or motivations that i think serves the other thing that i'm doing well hala we're going to take a break you can blow your nose yeah. Thank you. Um, and um, and we'll be back in about 90 seconds. And, and after the break, I want to explore um, more directly your Palestinian heritage and the role of Palestine in your writing and in, uh, in, in, the, in the latest novel. So we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back in about 60 seconds. So hold on, everyone. Uh, and then we'll be back with the writer, uh, Hala Alcon. Uh, sorry, Hala Alyan, uh, the author of the acclaimed Arsonist City. Perfect. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are talking with the Palestinian-American writer, Hala Alyan. Uh, Hala, uh, Hala, in uh, preparation for this, I made a few maps, or at least I, I borrowed some images of maps. We have okay. a map of uh, Lebanon, which of course is a complicated, argued over map, north of Israel. And of course, uh, the map of the Middle East as well, which is equally complicated and controversial. Your Wikipedia page describes you as a, Amer a Palestinian-American writer, whatever that means, uh, and a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma, addiction, and cross-cultural behavior. Uh, and your writing and poetry covers aspects of both identity and the effect of displacement. Is that the essence of a, a Palestinian-American writer? Can you avoid that displacement? Is it the core of you? 
even though there is no core? I don't know that it's the core. It's certainly something that impact. I mean, it's like anything, right? So it's it's a it's a it's a big part of my family history. Therefore, it's going to impact the way that I see the world and perspective taking, kind of how I interact with others, um, my understanding of identity, etc. So it's I don't know that I'd say it's it's the single defining feature of myself, but it's certainly a part of how I am in the world and of the world. Yeah. And what about the controversy there? I mean, obviously the. The Palestine-Israel conflict is enormously controversial, particularly increasingly in America on uh, university campuses. What are your thoughts about um, how the conflict is covered in the United States? Um, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because I think language here becomes really important. So even I wouldn't think I would not I, I wouldn't use the word conflict because I think conflict implies. Um, well, it parody. is a conflict. I mean, from, from in reality, on the ground, mostly, isn't it? For I think it, I think the word conflict implies parity. I think it infl- implies two right. sides that have equal, you know, military power, etc., agency over one another. So I, I say this as I use that as an example to say that I think to answer your question, I think that um, the coverage in the states is, you know, I mean, it depends on where you're getting your news. It depends on the particular time of the year. Um, but I think it's it's one of those things where I think that language becomes really important when we talk about the situation. And and sometimes the the coverage in the States, you know, does a good job with that. And sometimes it, it, it I, I think, fails a little bit short. Well, that's your polite way of saying it's generally pretty bad. We, we've had <laughs> a, a couple of shows on um, Israel. I had Daniel Sokach on the show, who I think positions himself as a liberal. He's certainly to the left of Noah Tishby, who has also been on the show, who makes a distinction between, I think, the suffering of the Jews and the suffering of the Palestinians, suggesting that there really isn't a Palestinian people, uh, mm-hmm. whereas uh, Sokach acknowledges that. A um, couple of questions, uh, um, Hala. Firstly, how bleak is the situation now for the Palestinian people? And secondly, uh, how would you respond to someone like Tishbi, who essentially denies there's such a thing as a Palestinian people? I mean, to answer your first question, I would direct you towards your second. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's bleak enough that that is something that I have to answer to, that part of what it is to be interviewed is to assert my existence or my people's existence. I think that's pretty bleak. Well, it could be more or less bleak. I mean, what, what what's your reading of the situation on the ground? Is there is it essentially hopeless now in terms of any possible solution to the current situation? I mean, I don't think anything is hopeless because I I think to go back to what I was saying about history, history is not something some passive thing that happens right. in like a vacuum or a void. It's thing that happens. It's 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 it is made by human hands and human decisions and human thinking and human brains. So no, I think there are choices that are made and there are different choices that could be made. I Do I think that it is inevitable that there has to be an occupation? No, I don't. I think there's a lot of places where there aren't occupations. I think there's a lot of places where there yeah, is I mean, I think coexistence, etc. Right. I mean, so, I, 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 I would assume you would say that, but, but what can, what can happen? What can change? What would you like to see happen to begin to, to, to make things more 
fixed. I mean, you never I'm, can fix it completely. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody, everybody living alongside one another on the land um, with equal rights and there not being any sort of apartheid-like laws or regulations or policies, I think that would be a great start. But how could that happen? By changing policies and laws. We began this conversation, Hala, talking about great power politics in the Middle East, the role of America in profound injustice, bombing, yes. the Chinese, the Russians. For you as a American, Palestinian-American writer, do you have a sense of your role or power could be in persuading Americans and the American government to try to help change things? What a lovely question. Um, I think that art and literature, while no replacement for actual changing of like policies and laws and on the ground um, shifts, I think that they can be profound tools for helping to your point, just shift perspectives and shift worldviews. And one of the things that happened with um, Salt Houses that was really, I didn't anticipate, I kind of wrote it thinking about my parents as an audience, my brother this as an audience. This is the first novel. So this is the first novel. That's right. Yeah. Which is Ten about, which is a story, which is a story about a Palestinian family. And I think I wrote that really thinking about like my parents reading it, my friends reading it, kind of, a, you know, a smaller group of people. And one of the things that happened that was a really lovely surprise was that I, it ended up in the hands of folks that knew virtually nothing about Palestine or had, you know, heard, you know, one narrative or one, um, one perspective. And, I got a, a lot of people reaching out being like, I just didn't know anything about this. I didn't know anything about the situation. Um, and it sort of inspired um, or it sort of like motivated or encouraged people to sort of look a little bit more into the history and kind of do their own digging and whatnot. Because I mean, and that in my opinion is sort of what a writer can do or what an artist can do, right. Is that you can get people curious. I think the worst thing that can happen in the face of, um, injustice or, or marginalization is just the lack of cure. It's apathy. Like that's really the, that's the real killer. Um, so if you can get people just to kind of like go online, so to speak, and, 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 and be just like, huh, I'm not sure I know enough about that. Huh. That's got me thinking now I want to learn. Now I want to ask. Now I want to whatever. Mm. I think that that feels like a big victory. As I said, your family is doubly displaced first from mm -hmm. Palestine and then from Kuwait. Um, so you're a, a casualty of, of a series of wars, the, the latest being the Iraq war. We've had a, a lot of shows about that. We've had the American journalist Robert Draper mm. about the Iraq war, claiming that it was the worst mistake in the history of American foreign policy. Mm. How much do you personally um, integrate the Iraq war and your displacement there from uh Israel and Palestine the war of 1948 and your displacement from Israel itself yeah I mean when I think about my family's history I'm I think that they I think that they're definitely similar I mean here's the reality that at the end of the day both of those displacements or exiles or whatever language you want to use resulted in the end of a relationship with a particular place resulted in having to effectively start over. Um, that's something my grandparents had to do in Palestine. And that's something my parents had to do when they left Kuwait. Um, they, they were effectively left with nothing and just had, sort of had to rebuild their lives again 
which was a legacy at that point that they had already sort of seen modeled for them and their parents. So I think in that sense, yeah, I mean, but both of those, both of those displacements resulted in, in you know, an, an entire lineage being interrupted, really. And war is, of course, catastrophic. Um, yeah. Recently, we also had the American congressman, Ruben Gallego. He's a congressman from uh, Arizona mm. who fought in um, Iraq. And he, he's written a very moving book about the fate of Lima Company, the suicide, the the death, the psychological illnesses of everyone associated with him, including himself. Do you think that the American involvement in Iraq and this catastrophe, this failed war and the impact it's had on a generation of soldiers. Do you think that that could make Americans more sympathetic and understanding to what the Palestinians have gone through? Um, I mean, I hope so. I, 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 I think, you know, it's worth noting that the, the devastation that resulted from that invasion and that war happened on foreign soil. It didn't, you know, it happened on American soil in the sense that yes, people that, you know, vets and whatnot came back with PTSD and with a ton and continue to not be given the, the resources that they need upon returning. But in the sense of where, 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 where was the violence, where was the devastation, where was the whatever it was happening on, on, on someone else's soil. So I think in that sense, the concept of, and that's true for in, in America for, for a while now that the wars are fought on other soil. I, th I do think that creates a little bit of a disconnect and a little bit of a, a distance from it so that the other than the folks that are on the ground, you know, so the vets or the, the, the soldiers or whatnot, the interaction between the American public and these and these places and these devastations are really through the, they're through the news. They're through like I know Abu Ghraib, like the images from Abu Ghraib were, were particularly like that was something that I think really shifted um, sort of a lot of popular opinion in the country. So I think in that sense, you know, I hope so. Um, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that is happening that is really starting to shift thinking in this country and elsewhere is this realization that if we are going to fight for social justice anywhere, we have to be consistent. We don't get to pick and choose whose social justice counts more or whose marginalization is worth count, you know, um, fighting for. So I think that, you know, we saw this in May in this country when people, when Palestine once again became part of like the discourse in, in, in American, you know, news and whatnot. Um, that that things like the you know like BLM spokespeople stand you know speaking up for Palestine things like that like I think that that is starting to really shift because this concept of intersectionality um, you know is one where like we have to be consistent if, if if we're going to fight for human rights we have to fight for human rights everywhere um, and and I think that that's something that's really starting to enter the the discourse a little bit more consistently here. Well, hello. Alian, the author of the two two novels, The Arsonist City uh, and Salt Houses, both acclaimed, as well as um, a, a, a collection, sorry, a collection of poetry, the yeah. 29th year, which was also acclaimed. Uh, I really want to thank you so much for braving COVID and appearing on the show. You're a <laughs> heroine, Hala. Um, in so addition much. to your, your, your novels and poetry and indeed movie making, what else should people be reading or watching in these strange times in late December it. 2021? So some things I've, I've 
recently read our um, Jarrar's, um Oh my gosh, you just told me to think about this and I forgot. Yeah. Wow, well, you have a good excuse because of COVID. Love is a, yes, I'm, I'm under that COVID fuck. Love is an ex country. Um, and then also Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Emstein is, is a big recommendation of mine. I'm currently reading, um, it's actually here right now, Wintering by Catherine May, which I'm really enjoying. And then in terms of television, we've just devoured Succession, the latest season of Succession. Strongly mm. recommend. Um, yeah, those are those are some things that are that are keeping me going these days. Well, keep going, Hala. We need you, <laughs> important voice you. of um, of 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 young talented novelists. I don't know whether I want to. Thank I mean, you. are you? I, I assume you don't want to be called a an American Palestinian American writer. You're just a writer That's who happens fine. to be. Palestinian I, I, I happen to also you, be Palestinian American. Yeah, that's totally right. Fine. But you write about those themes. You write I about do. the modern Middle East, and you're an important voice. And it's great to Thank have you, you on the show, especially braving COVID. I think um, perhaps next year you can come back, Hala, when you'll be hundred percent, and we can talk more about these incredibly complicated issues. I would uh, love that. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.